Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Spore the Warning podcast. This is our continuing coverage of films that we're seeing at Tribeca Film Festival. This is our review of The Seagull. I'm Christopher Schneezy. And I'm Stephen Miller. If you're joining us for the first time, the Spore the Warning podcast is a weekly film review program. Each week in the show, we're going to dive in, debate, discuss, and argue over the latest film releases coming to a theater near you. Once again, of course, this week, <laughs> because I have no idea when this film is going to release. But we are here to talk about the film the sequel. I, I believe this is one of those that is already being distributed by Sony Pictures Classics and is okay. actually going to come out in just a couple months. Okay. Yeah. I mean, it's still a couple months away, but yeah. <laughs> I don't know if there's a trailer for this film. As summer begins, the guests arrive. So, Good evening. Well, sit down. Join us. Isn't she adorable? <laughs> Even the thought of her makes my heart race. No, no, don't be shy. He's a celebrity, but he has a simple soul. Boris Trigorin, he's so famous. He looked young. He is young and accomplished, don't remind me. The stage is set. Oh, hello. Hello. Uh, Who is that that you were talking to? Nina. Yes. For a little family drama. Have you seen Nina? She went to the lake with Boris. It's not often I have the occasion to meet young, interesting women. What does it feel like to be famous? Masha, why is my son so depressed? He's heart sick. What's that supposed to mean? Constantine! I love Constantine. <laughs> such a face, such a marvelous voice. You must go on the stage. I envy you. You're happy. Please, be generous. Let me go. What, are you that infatuated with her? Why do you always wear black? I'm in mourning. For my life. the reason for your misery these past 20 years. I've only been miserable the past 10. I'm just a woman like any other. It's your chance to be a woman unlike any other. Remember all the laughter and the noise? And the love affairs. So many love affairs. The Seagull. I am going to tear this love out of my heart. How are you going to do that? I'll get Married. Um, so yeah, The Seagull is a film based on the Chekhov play, and essentially it's four people who uh, have like various um, problems with their relationship due to uh, maybe jealousy over both love and talent in <laughs> in their various fields. Stephen Miller, what did you think of The Seagull? So I should preface this by saying I, as I imagine is true for you two, have never read this play. Correct. Um, I've, I've read something by Chekhov before. I can't even remember what it was, but it was definitely not the sequel. Um, and yeah, I wasn't sure what to expect going into this movie because in my mind, movies based on plays, particularly kind of older plays, can go a few different ways. Like sometimes it can feel like playing dress up. Sometimes it can actually feel kind of naturalistic. And I think... This movie skirted the line between those in a way that I actually found quite charming as the film continued. Uh, I was going to ask you when we left the theater if you had seen Joss Whedon's Much Ado About Nothing. I have not. So an interesting choice that he made is to set that movie in modern day yeah. his house, <laughs> but to keep all of the Shakespearean dialogue like 
perfectly on script Shakespearean dialogue. Yeah, and, and one I remember watching the trailer for that. And I was like, oh, I'm definitely going to watch this movie because this yeah. looks great. Um, and I just never got around to it. Um, I confess to you in the car as we were leaving the theater that I totally expected just from the description of this film that they were going to do a similar thing and that this is going to be a modernized retelling. Uh, but no, this is a period-appropriate yeah. film. <laughs> yeah, th- this is a period-appropriate film with an all-star cast that seem like they're just having a blast playing the roles. I mean, Saoirse Ronan... Uh, is Nina kind of the the younger love interest slash actress? Uh, Corey Stoll plays an older writer, Boris. Annette Benning plays the mother who is married to or in a relationship with Boris. Brian Dennehy is just like the crazy old uncle character. <laughs> he he's Brian Dennehy basically. He did, <laughs> he didn't need to modify his behavior at all for this movie. Um, Apparently not. Elizabeth Moss is the depressed. Uh, I don't even remember her character name, Masha, I think, the the depressed woman who is fixated on a protagonist who will never know how much she loves him. And this movie is kind of a, like Much Ado About Nothing, it's kind of a crisscrossing of romantic triangles or rhombuses, <laughs> like, <laughs> arrows point in all these different directions in a way that could be played a screwball and sometimes is, but is also played to kind of make a point. And I think the point that this film... I feel funny talking about it because it's a play, so I'm sure smart people have analyzed what this means way more than I'm going to do in like 15 minutes at 9 in the morning on a Sunday. But this seems like it's a play about love and art and the way that those combine into each other. So the main... Yeah, I mean, it's it's also... It's like a... You know the the wheel of strength and weakness in Pokemon. Yeah, it's sort of like that. Like every single character has a person they're disappointing and a person that's disappointing yes. them, and that's kind of where the 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 conflict of this film and the sadness and the happiness all strive from. Yeah. So the the main characters in this film, if I can just lay them out, are uh, the parent uh, Annette Benning's character is an actress who had some success in her life, maybe not as much as she acts like she had, but some amount. Uh, The writer, Boris, played by Corey Stoll, who is a famous writer. He lives his life kind of as if his art doesn't affect him. Like, he he aggregates everything he sees in the world. He writes it down, and then he just puts it out there. And he kind of uses and discards things in art and in life, and he doesn't make a big deal about it. Uh, Constantine, Annette Benning's son is someone who wants art to mean so much to him. Uh, So he makes these like experimental plays that he's excited to show everyone that are kind of insanely um, (laughs) pompous and trying so hard to say something grand about life and death and animals and humans and where we all fit. And he wants everything to mean so much. I feel like he in a younger period of time, he could have been played by John Malkovich. Like he seems like yeah, someone yeah. who takes himself so, so seriously. Yeah. Uh, if, if one of the, if, if one of his plays was a movie in real life, it would be Darren Aronofsky's mother. Yeah. <laughs> yes, yeah, that, that, that's a good comparison. And then Saoirse Ronan as Nina, who she wants to be an artist, and she is kind of a purist at heart. She's an idealist. She yeah. thinks that fame and being able to like be on the stage and be known for your creation is the best thing that could happen to you. And this movie is kind of musing about how none of those things will make a person happy in the end. And there's like obviously a lot of meta commentary about art and plays and whether things are overly scripted, whether they're trying too hard, whether you should like 
let art ruin you or whether you should treat it as commerce and just like create and discard. And their behavior with love is very similar. Um, the, the people who create and discard art also kind of discard people in a similar loving fashion. The people who invest themselves fully into their art also invest themselves into their love in a reckless fashion that can hurt them in the end. And yeah, I don't, there was just something I thought was very shimmering about this movie. It, it felt glossy. Like it felt like very theatrical in what I thought was a good way. Uh, there, there's a movie we watched last week that we aren't supposed to name. That was also a period piece. Well, that, that, played here at tribeca as well so i think okay so we can we can say it now yeah we can say that yeah name. so we we watched mary shelley last week too which we didn't bother to review a because it was a surprise and we weren't supposed to talk about it yeah but b because neither of us liked that movie um and <laughs> i was afraid after that movie that people speaking in kind of old-timey vernacular playing dress up would just not work for me like i i thought like I'm just not a period piece guy anymore. Uh, and the seagull showed me that I, I can be if it is enchanting enough, like if it just steers into its theatricality and lets everyone play off each other as if they're standing on a stage. So, yeah, I don't know. It, it, it worked for me really well. I don't, it is not modern at all, but there's something about the way that the story was told that was easy to kind of soak into kind of the way you talk about foreign movies and how you, you forget you're reading subtitles after yeah. a while. I kind of forget after a while that I am watching people perform a play and I just kind of soak into the characters. Yeah. So I, first off, I didn't overcome the period piece aspect. It, mm -hmm. it may, it may just be that I, I'm just not into period pieces now. Um, at least not from, from these periods. <laughs> um, but I think also for me, like, so when, when we were to, for some back context for people, uh, Stephen and I, like the day we could actually book the tickets from the passes that we bought, we went online, we had like descriptions of every film. And I think that the seagull sounded very, it sounded really interesting to me. Um, and even like I'd forgot what it was about. And then reading the description while we were in line, I was like, oh yeah, I'm totally in for this movie. This is going to be cool. And I think that what I, what I wanted slash expected from it is sort of a hyper-real hyper overacted version of, mm. of this story. Like I want, I want real fast wit and, and really interesting dialogue between characters who are dealing with this circumstance. Like there are moments in this film that made me laugh, right? Like mm. there are like uh, characters that are sort of making statements where they don't realize the difference between the situations. Like there's, there's, there's a great scene where like two people have a conversation all about one person and they're like why why don't you give him money like if you just give him money you'll solve all of his problems and the next scene is that the character who that character was saying should be given money to be happy is like well why don't you just give money to this other person to make them happy and like those are the type of things like the, those sort of back and forth and those quippy natures or the the namesake for this film like where that title comes from there are funny things yeah. um i think overall it was hard for me to and maybe it's because it's like not even counting the literal cast, but it's an ensemble piece for a bunch of people to act certain roles. And I feel like this is probably like an actory actor type yeah. thing, right? Where it's like a bunch of people who are supposed to just give these big performances. And I feel like maybe they were a little subdued, like they were playing, they were acting well, but also playing a straight version of what this story allows for. And like, once again, I didn't read Chekhov. <laughs> like I, I don't, I don't, I can't. 
I can't speak to the way it was originally written, um, how close this is an adaptation to the literal words. Um, but I just feel that like it was missing something to draw me in. And, um, you know, in a world where most of my days are spent listening to people dialoguing at like 1.5 to 2x speed, a film where everybody's delivering normal dialogue at normal speeds without some sort of heightened sense of like wit and Chris and, doesn't like the real world anymore. <laughs> no, I just, I'm completely disassociated from it. Um, but it's just, it's a thing that like, to me, I, I felt a little lacking in it. It just, it, mm. it, it didn't excite me the way I felt it could. Like the description was more exciting than what I got from the film and everybody did a great job in it. Like I can't fault anybody for the performance they did because they did, they did a good job. It's just, a thing that didn't excite me. Um, there's a narrative structure in this film where it repeats. And I was like, dear God, <laughs> like, please, I don't, I don't want to read, go through this opening to this film. Cause it was just, I was, I was sort of just tired of it by the time we got there. Hmm. And I think that I'm willing to admit I am the problem. <laughs> it's just that this film just, just wasn't for me. Yeah. Um, so, so a thing that surprises me is you mentioned you wanted it to be kind of hyper real and, play like and overacted a bit more and i felt like this did that or at least did it to the degree that i would have wanted it i felt like annette benning's character uh brian dennehy's character um there's another guy who is like the groundsman who's supposed to be elizabeth moss's father i feel like there are people in this movie that are cranking it up like dialing it a little bit more than you would ever have in a normal film that that like got that for me and i, I guess maybe you wanted it cranked up to screwball levels to, to I, me they definitely had the theatricality and the hyper real acting i guess for me the characters were big but what i what i kind of mean is you you know when you watch a film and you go like i bet this was a play because it feels like these are people standing on a stage even though it's in the real world I feel like this film lacked that like the the characters were large, but the actors were acting to the camera, not to a crowd that was sitting beyond the camera. Mm -hmm. And I feel like there was some level of intrigue that I get from watching a thing that is very stagey and very like just I keep going back to hyper real. But like it, it's like where they're they're quipping at a pace that is unnatural and it lends to a, a feeling of like these are people overacting and, and going quicker than normal and this film it was like they're overacting they're big characters but they're not like maybe it's just a pacing issue for me where it didn't it didn't uh, have enough of a of a like train chugging along feeling mm -hmm. it was sort of just like a slow period piece that also happened to deal with situations that were kind of funny but i guess i, I felt like the downtime between joke left me less like the 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 oddball relationships were enough to keep me interested, but the downtime and the like regular situations were less like exciting to me. Yeah, which is fine. I'm just surprised because to me, this movie is the definition of the thing that you would watch and say, oh, this must be a play. Yeah. Just from the ensemble structure and the way the 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 patter goes back and forth. Like there, there's a scene where... Uh, Corey Stoll and Elizabeth Moss are going back and forth about like what she should do in her love life and whether or not she should get married. That to me, you can you can hear like the dialogue being written for that. Like this, yeah. this sounds like the sort of thing where it would happen in a play, and then there would be a, a break for laughs after it's like 
reached a pace of back and forth where people get i, I don't know it, it felt I, very theatrical to me in, I, that, in that way i guess for me like there, there's a scene where two characters are like on a rowboat off on their own and people are up in the house having a conversation at the same time i feel like in the play version both those things are on stage at the same time and they're bouncing back and forth and like just the spotlight is the only thing changing yeah. right in this story it's a literal cut to this other location and it just that for me breaks the the uh not repetition, but it, the, break, the, it breaks the, the cadence of yeah. the film. And it, it's, it's for me, the, the overall cadence wasn't exciting. Mm-hmm. So the moments that were funny to me were just, just not enough to carry me through the other parts that weren't. For me, there was some joy in figuring out how they transposed it. Like there's a scene where Annette Benning's uh, actress character is going on a lengthy kind of uh, self-aggrandizing monologue about how good she looks and how well she keeps herself. And in the movie, this is made to be cut across different moments in time, like throughout the day or throughout the week. And it, it was interesting to me to think about how that would have been done on the stage, like whether that's all supposed to be done just in one scene. And here they just decided to make it be like uh, a uh, a montage of her in different places I, I don't know there were little bits like that that i felt like the screenwriter was having fun with yeah i i want to say there were three characters in this movie that i liked a lot the the ones outside of them i think felt like more secondary fun scenery chewing bits but not very deep i loved uh cory stoll's character as um the what was his name? Baron? Boris. Uh, Corey Stoll's Boris. I thought he had a really nice, like, world-weary, semi-cynical way of approaching things. And there's a scene where he and Saoirse Ronan are on a boat together going out to an island. And she's asking him, what is it like to be famous? What is it like to be a well-respected author? This is everything I've ever wanted. And he describes the way it changes nothing. And I... I just thought the dynamic between them was really, really, really good. I, I, I don't know. I really liked what he was doing there. I, I guess for me, too, the other problem is that, like, there was no moment in time. Outside of characters talking about his accomplishments, I never really... There's nothing that he says that makes me think that the other character should be jealous of him from a career standpoint. I mean, it makes sense that he would be jealous that his love is into him because of his accomplishments. But like there, this film lacks moments of characters making profound statements that make me think that they are the type of writer who they think Mm -hmm. it is. Like, it'd be like if you watched, if you watched a film about like an indie music person and you never heard one of their songs, right? (laughs) Sure. I just, in my mind, that's the nature of a play is this is like somewhat satirizing the gap between the famous writer and the young experimentalist. And one imagines Chekhov sees himself somewhere in between those two bits. So I don't, I don't think he's trying to prove to us that any of these people are actually great artists. I I think he's kind of having fun with the idea that maybe they're all awful. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah. I just, yeah. Yeah. Uh, So the other people I like, I I like Saoirse Ronan. That should come as no surprise, but she basically just has a very Saoirse ronan role here as being the wide-eyed optimist who is going to have her dreams destroyed at some point in the movie. I think there's a great line that I assume this is in the play and in the movie it just becomes a note that gets written down by Corey Stoll about like the, sea girl, the seagull, this girl living on a lake who 
has everything going wonderful and for no reason at all a man decides to destroy her i i thought that was just like a i i really liked that that was like a ooh what's gonna happen next type of situation <laughs> and i also even though he is chewing scenery more than maybe anyone else i like the character of constantine the young artist who wants to create something that will last i think he plays it really big in the beginning in a goofy way where he's kind of the butt of the joke. But by the end of the movie, there's a conversation he has with Saoirse Ronan that felt very, like, wistful and interesting. Just like a well-written yeah. look but back at what life has been and what life is going to be that reminded me of, like, some of my favorite plays. Like, I mentioned he reminds me of uh, uh, Malkovich. And Malkovich did a filmed version of The Glass Menagerie, which is really, really, really good play. And he ends that one with a monologue that is like one of my one of my favorite bits of writing in any play ever. And this reminded me of that. It I, I thought it capped the story really nicely. I mean his his uh hit or uncapped it. Ha. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but I, I think that he's, he's the most real character in the story, right? Like mm. he's the one where all of his accomplishments or lack thereof are on the screen. Like it's not just characters making the statement. It's like you see that he has talent and that he has dreams and it's not just a guy who says it. Like he writes things because he thinks that maybe he can be profound with it or he like when he's feeling emotionally like charged or whatever, he'll go in and just play piano and like you see that he is a talented person, right? Mm-hmm. Like he's, he's somebody who like everything that he's trying to be is there for you to watch. And all the other characters are just people who have done stuff in the past. He's Elio and do... call me by your name. Basically. No, no, exactly. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, so it, it's like, you can, he, he seems real and everyone else seems like an idea. Mm-hmm. And uh, maybe that's the point. I don't know. <laughs> who can say, <laughs> who can say, <laughs> Um, but yeah, so any, any last comments on the film? Uh, no, the only other thing I wanted to mention is I thought the cinematography was nice. Again, it, it felt sweeping and romantic and shimmering is the only like way I can describe it. It felt like it is trying to be glossy and waxing about this time period, which for a movie about a celebrated play, I feel like that that's the right tone to strike. I liked it, even though I'm sure somebody might find it cliche or over over the top <laughs> cool uh should we get to verdicts then mm-hmm. all right so Stephen miller if you're going to give us a must see reckon with the caveat wait for rental pass with the caveat or a must avoid what would you give it to me this is the definition of recommend with a caveat i think it has a lot to recommend it especially if you go into the mindset that i am watching a play if if you've seen adaptations of shakespeare plays where people stuck to the original dialogue i think you have a good idea of what to expect. It's going to be a little bit over the top. It's going to feel a little bit archaic. Characters are sketched, and the ensemble never really gets a chance to fully shine. But I think I think it perfectly delivered on the sort of thing I was looking for. Caveat being, if you just watch this as a movie movie, there are some weird bits in there. <laughs> you, you have to watch it as a thing based on old source material where ensemble is coming to like do their darndest to bring it back to life yeah well i watch this as a movie movie <laughs> um no i mean i'm, I'm like i said before like I'm, I'm i think this film is just not for me mm-hmm. um and that's fine uh so i i'd feel bad giving it anything worse than a wait for rental just because 
Like I, it's, I didn't enjoy it at all. Um, and then but, give it something worse. Make Carson happy. <laughs> Go with your gut. Must avoid. No, <laughs> no I mean, I, I, for me, it's like a pass with the caveat. The caveat is being if you uh, like these uh, actors, actor type things, where it's like a bunch of people just get together and perform the hell out of something that uh, it was loved by a lot of people, then this is probably going to be right up your alley. Um, unless you just want a modernized take that's more quippy, then it's not going to be up your alley. <laughs> but it's fine. I'll do it. Pass the caveat. <laughs> uh, also, I, I looked it up, and while this movie slash play would be a perfect example of Chekhov's gun in the literal sense, the phrase came from letters from Chekhov, so it's not actually clear that it refers to any one play. But this movie has a Chekhov's gun in it, for sure. <laughs> one could argue, uh, like... Chekhov's gun within a Chekhov's gun. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, I think that's going to do it for this review of The Seagull. Uh, Stephen Miller, people want to find, find you throughout the week. Where can they do that? If people want to find me, they can go to twitter.com slash sdavidmiller or sdavidmiller.com. People can find me at christopherinreallife.com or twitter.com slash christopherirl. You can find the podcast over at thespoilerwarning.com. We can get a bunch of the back episodes of the show. If you want to subscribe to the show, you can do so in Overcast, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or wherever podcasts are found. If you want to know when the episodes go live, you can follow us at twitter.com slash spoilerwarning or like us at facebook.com slash thespoilerwarning. If you want to get hold of us directly, you can send an email to fans at thespoilerwarning.com or you can use the contact form on our site. Uh, music for this episode will come from various jingles about the uh, Tribeca Film Festival, so hopefully you're enjoying that. And uh, yeah, we have more reviews to do, so we will catch you later. Bye.